understood that he came for me that's what really helped me to understand my salvation because we've all heard of jesus christ coming and dying on the cross but when we personalize it that he came he died on that cross for me and that song there that diane sang i never thought about it that way but he's coming again and he's coming again for me Amen to that. That's great. We have such a wonderful God who loves us so much. Well, you know, these are busy times. My head is just spinning. And I am so thankful for men in our church that can preach when we have extra busy times. And so uh, last time we went to camp, I asked Josh Waldecker to preach for us. And that was a blessing. Amen. And so I said, Brother Josh, why don't you preach again for us? That I enjoy his preaching. I've enjoyed his fellowship. We have had discipleship together for two or three years, I believe. And it has been rich and wonderful time. And so, Brother Josh, I told Brother Yoshi he never quit early tonight because you are a long-winded preacher. <laughs> so you come. The time is yours, though. And you give to us what God has laid on your heart. Amen. Well, amen. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I have some things tonight that I'd like to share with you. Uh, as far as being a long-winded fellow, I do have 19 pages of notes, so thank you for leaving me plenty of time. Um, luckily, it's big font, you know, so it's not so bad. It's not so bad. 
Um, you know, about a month ago, uh, if you guys remember, uh, we went through a secular case for the truth of the Bible. And, uh, and you know, I shared with you how my testimony um, was riddled with skepticism. I was uh, declared myself an agnostic skeptic for many years. and uh, But it was not that I actually felt that I could not know uh, the truth. It was that I did not want to know the truth. And I ultimately hid behind a wall of skepticism um, that can be cleared up very quickly and, uh, and, and luckily without even having to turn to this Bible. And so we're going to do something a little different tonight. We're not going to preach from the Bible. We're going to preach to the Bible. And uh, my apologies if you guys aren't um, as into philosophy and science as I am. But uh, so if you're not as nerdy in that regard as I am, you may not find this very interesting. But what we're going to talk about tonight is atheism. And uh, the question I'm asking tonight is, is atheism a reasonable belief in today's day and age? Uh, so many people nowadays want to say, well, how could you know? How could you ever know? And, uh, and so what we want to get into today is, is not necessarily, um, we want to talk about how you can know, we want to talk about whether or not atheism is a reasonable standpoint in, uh, in today's day and age with what we know. And I intend to kind of piggyback off of what we did last time. It is commonly asserted that theism, and in particular Christian theism, uh, is without any evidence and therefore any rational belief. Uh, you will hear this constantly coming from skeptics. Um, this is patently false. As we saw a month ago, um, there are very good reasons for believing that the Bible and by extension that Christianity is true um, just from extra-biblical sources. We don't even have to go to the Word itself to, to make that case. But, but there are even more sound abstract arguments for the existence of God uh, that we didn't touch on last time. And so what I want to do today is look at some of those arguments and, uh, and ultimately determine which worldview is more logical, theism or atheism. And, and though most of you here tonight, this is a Sunday night crowd, are probably already believers in Christ, but um, what I would hope this would do is it would do the same thing it did for me and just strengthen your faith and help you to realize um, that the truth is so apparent uh, that you would literally have to have your head in the sand to not see this. And, uh, and we will approach this from the point of view of what an atheist must believe. And what we're going to get into tonight is called the first cause argument. And this argument falls in our category of natural theology. And so, like I said, this is why we're going to preach to the Bible. We're not going to preach from the Bible tonight. And what natural uh, theology is, is it's meaning that you can discover theological truths of the existence of God, of the characters of God, um, of the characteristics, excuse me, of God, uh, independent of divine revelation. And, uh, or in other words, it's an argument that, uh, for God that doesn't require your Bible. And, uh, this argument here is the most commonly used argument for the existence of God. It is completely logically sound. It is airtight. And it's backed by evidence in the natural world. So in regards to philosophy and science, there's really no, I, I believe, no better argument for the existence of God than this argument, uh, today. And uh, what we're going to see is that from this argument, we can draw out the characteristics of God and we can determine that the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is as real and alive today um, as he has been from eternity. And... uh, And so this argument, a lot of times, is also referred to as the cosmological argument, and it goes as follows. One, everything that comes into existence has a cause. Uh, Two, the universe came into existence. And C, therefore, the universe has a cause. And uh, this argument flows naturally from what we know about the the, uh, regular world. This is a a, uh, cosmic chicken and an egg uh, uh, problem. Uh, What came first? 
And, uh, and so, because in reality, everything that comes into existence has a cause for its existence. We can discover this very easily by uh, looking at ourselves. You and I both have causes, which would be our parents, uh, and causes before that, our grandparents, and so on and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> beings that come into existence, like ourselves, uh, that, and will eventually go out of existence, are what we call contingent beings. Uh, their existence is contingent on the cause that came before them. They don't have to exist, but they exist because of the cause that came before them. They cannot be said to have caused themselves. I could not logically be the cause of myself because I would have to already exist in order to be the cause of myself. But I haven't caused myself to exist yet, therefore I don't exist. And so I cannot, so I cannot be said to be the cause of myself. That makes absolutely no sense. And so the universe is full of contingent beings. I mean, it's literally everywhere we look, galaxies, the planets and stars they're made of, uh, living organisms, anywhere from bacteria all the way to human beings and everything in between. All of these things are temporal contingent beings. They have not always, always existed, and they have a cause that is not themselves. Now, don't get me wrong, and we're going to get back to this. Uh, there's no reason to believe um, that these causes could not extend infinitely into the future. Um, however, what we're going to see is they cannot extend infinitely into the past. Not as how we understand them. And uh, But literally every single thing we find in our universe fits the description of something that comes into existence and therefore has not always existed into the past, and therefore there must be a first cause. So here we get to our first problem. Right, So the problem here is if everything that exists is contingent, how does anything at all exist? Like I said, if I am in the existence of my, if I'm the cause of my own existence, but I can't cause my own existence until I exist, then I don't exist. And so ultimately, if everything is truly contingent, then nothing exists. And you see that that makes very little sense, because obviously we all exist. And, uh, and so we run into a problem there. And, uh, and so what this does, it creates the necessity uh, for a being that is eternal, that exists outside of space and time with the ability to create the universe. Yeah. And uh, and so we're going to kind of unpack this idea tonight. Uh, but one thing I want to make perfectly clear, and you're going to see this by the end, that this being, that the, the belief in this being is not wishful thinking. I'm part of the theist. Uh, the existence of this being is actually necessary. This being must exist, and we're going to see this uh, at this point. And so this puts the atheist in a real bind. This gets them into some real trouble. Um, so, you know, what are some ways they could get out of this? You know, well, um, they could say, and this is one I hear all the time, and uh, and I love this, my personal favorite, they could say, well, maybe we'll discover an explanation for this in the future. Maybe there's some naturalistic explanation that could explain this without God, right? Um, this is a personal favorite of mine because this is not an argument. Think about that. We're, you know, if someone has to appeal to something we don't yet know as a refutation of an argument that is based on what we do already know, then you find an example of personal incredulity. They just can't believe that God exists, but they haven't made an argument. They have not defeated the argument with that. And so the person would simply have to withhold belief or, um, you know, basically the inevitable truth is too unbelievable to them. But again, that is not a logical argument. That is just their own unbelief. And so um, this is also an example of scientism, which this is a real problem in today's day and age. Scientism is the idea that the only way we can know anything, the only way we can know any truth is, uh, is from science and from scientific research. And, uh, and so this is essentially atheism just dressed up as science. Um, it, it essentially states that there must be a naturalistic explanation for literally everything, in, including the natural world. And this runs into several different problems. Uh, the first of these is the proposition itself. 
uh, that science is the only way to discover truth. That proposition is not a scientific claim. That's a philosophical claim. And so, therefore, if that is true, then that's that not being a scientific claim. It refutes itself. And so the argument doesn't even get off the ground. The second is there are good scientific uh, reasons to believe that nature, composed of space, time, matter, and energy, did in fact have a beginning. We have good scientific reasons to believe this, and we're going to get into these. And uh, but but the thing, the rub here is that one cannot have a natural explanation for the origin of nature without assuming the existence of nature in that natural explanation. Again, we found a circular argument, and uh, and there's no way to get around that argument, but to admit that there are other ways to know things than just science alone. And third, as we've seen, this type of reasoning blocks a person from following the evidence where it leads. And this is ultimately the problem. The person who who, who uh, goes on this assumption is literally bound by biases. Uh, they are bound from following the evidence where it truly leads. They are blinding themselves. Um, they are a priori assuming that any explanation, regardless of what it is, regardless of whether or not we know it yet, must fit some certain narrow criteria of naturalism. And this person has already blocked themselves uh, from, from discovering the truth or from following the evidence where the evidence leads. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. And uh, and so again, this comes this this really falls into a fallacy, into a problem here. None of these are legitimate arguments, and they immediately fall apart. And so, what else might an atheist have to do? Well, the next thing they're going to do is they're going to say, "Well, what if matter and energy are infinite? What if they've existed forever and therefore don't require a cause?" And this is one of the one of the second most, or, or depending on who you're talking to, one of the more likely responses you're going to get from the atheist. And this has two primary problems. Uh, Both are fatal to this God-dodging assumption. And so the first one here is, according to the most fundamental laws of physics and chemistry, uh, to assert that any material thing has existed infinitely into the past is impossible. Um, we could cite specifically the laws of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, we don't need to get into a long explanation here. It's really simple. In a closed system, everything is headed towards disorder. The order that we experience today of humanities, are, human, are, are, are ordered, uh, the universe is ordered, that is heading towards disorder. And the problem here is, uh, is the closed system. The universe as a whole, according to an atheistic assumption, must be a closed system. Because they're making the argument that the universe is all that exists, and it has existed eternally forever. And so by definition, it's a closed system. And we can appeal to the third law of thermodynamics here, the conservation of energy, that, uh, that you know, energy and matter is not within our universe created or destroyed. It's just changed from one thing to another. And the sum total of matter and energy ultimately adds up to zero. And so, or one, depending on how you look at it. And so, uh, therefore, our current state of order... Um, you know, is said to be headed towards disorder, and the only thing that could get us out of that would be some kind of cause that would turn that disorder back to order. But again, that cause can't come from inside. It must come from outside of space and time. And so the atheist gets himself into a problem here where he has a closed system that is headed towards entropy. It's headed towards death. And uh, and so that is the first problem they find themselves. Now, even if they could escape this problem, uh, which they can't, by the way, but even if they could, there's a second fatal problem here with their assumption that matter has existed forever. And uh, and this is the idea that an infinite number of past events is actually possible at all. Like, let's say, uh, let's say the second law of thermodynamics is not true. Um, the idea that you could extend real past events infinitely into the past makes no sense. And the reason for this is because the number 
number infinity, um, it's actually false for me to even call that a number. It's actually not a number. It's merely a concept or an idea. No matter the highest number you could think of, infinity is at a minimum one more than that. And so you get to, you run into all kinds of problems uh, on this assumption. One of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century, uh, David Hilbert, acknowledges saying the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. The only remaining role for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. It's a concept. It has no role within space and time that can make any sense. And you can discover this by asking yourself, what's infinity minus infinity? What's infinity plus one? You can't make a logical argument from that because you can't base that on anything in reality. You get all kinds of contradictory answers to that question. And, uh, and so since the, the idea of infinity, since infinity is really just an idea, but past events are real, actual events, right? Your birth was not an idea. Yesterday was not an idea. Last week was not an idea. These are real, actual events. Um, therefore, we cannot logically, uh, without contradicting ourselves, extend these events backwards in time infinitely. We just can't. Since infinity is an idea, but the past is actual, there cannot be an infinite amount of actual events. And if there could be, then you're essentially arguing that this current event is not a real event. It's just an idea. It's just a concept. But that makes no sense. How can we make any sense out of that? And so you end up in all kinds of uh, feedback loops that, that make very little sense. Now, um, this doesn't mean we can't extend infinitely into the future. It just means that matter is not eternal, okay? And so matter cannot extend infinitely into the past, but it could extend into the future. And I, I, like, to, I like to go here because we, of course, believe in heaven. We believe in an infinite future. Um, our, phys- our physical reality, for example, doesn't have to go on forever, but it could. We don't know. In fact, the future is actually a concept or an idea, from our standpoint in space and time. It's actually not necessarily a reality. And so for that reason, we could extend indefinitely into the future. There's no thing stopping that um, uh, except for uh, going backwards in time infinitely makes very little sense. And, uh, and so again, and I'm going to quote here, uh, Alexander uh, Vilenkin is a professor of physics and the director of the Institute of uh, Cosmology at Tufts University. And he said, it is said that an argument is what it takes to convince reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. And with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the idea of a past eternal universe. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And, and again, this puts, this puts the atheist in a very, very awkward kind of situation. Um, <clears throat> and notice, none of this actually required me to even bring up the Big Bang idea. Um, if the person you're talking to generally holds to the Big Bang concept, they've made majority of your arguments for you. They believe the universe had a beginning. They believe space and time came to exist ultimately from nothing if they're an atheist, and we're going to get there. Um, but they believe that. And so if someone is going to make that claim, um, they've made a lot of these metaphysical claims for you, and you can guide them and help show them that. And, uh, and so, we've, so now we've determined that this first cause cannot be material or physical, uh, right? Because phys- physical material reality does not extend infinitely to the past, but it must be infinite, it must be eternal, and have the ability to create a universe. Uh, we're already getting pretty close to the characteristics of our God, amen? amen. And, uh, and so now we've seen that the claim the universe can't cause itself is illogical. Uh, but the atheist now is left to object to this argument only on the idea that the universe came from nothing. And obviously, this is about as illogical as it gets. Can, can nothing really come from nothing by taking no action? 
This is about as illogical as arguments can get. Now, there are smart intellectual people out here who make this argument. So how do they do that, right? Because they, they must realize that this is illogical. And what they do is they do this by disingenuously moving the goalposts. They redefine nothing to be something. And <laughs> to show this example, they will tell you that a quantum vacuum governed by the laws of physics, it, it could spontaneously create a universe. Okay, even if mathematically that's possible, which there are questions on that, but even if mathematically that's possible, um, a quantum vacuum governed by the laws of physics is not nothing. And to bring this out, we're actually going to, to illustrate this, we're going to use the uh, definition or the analogy of a bank account. And so, uh, but but basically the best logical explanation of nothing you could get would be not anything, right? It's the absence of anything. And so think about a bank account. A bank account is an area where money could be. Your money could be or it might not be, depending on your situation. And it's governed by a set of laws, laws that govern how the account may operate, how money may be deposited, how it may be withdrawn, how it may be transferred, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whether or not there is money in the account, uh, there is still an account that are governed by laws in place. That is certainly something. That is not nothing. And so when, phys- when physicists today talk about a universe from nothing, really they're talking about an empty bank account, which is the quantum vacuum governed by the laws of physics, that comes to have money in it, which would be the universe produced by that quantum vacuum. And so and prior to the influx of money in this hypothetical, there was certainly something, the bank account. And so you can see that what they're doing here, the physicist is essentially starting with something, and he's getting to more things, and, and as you can see, this immediately subjects them to all the arguments we've previously made. If they're starting with something, then they're assuming that something exists, and so that something becomes uh, immediately subjected to all the arguments previously, and as you can see, it falls apart. And uh, so simply put, anything other than an eternal, immaterial creator outside of space and time is actually, ironically in this case, wishful thinking on the part of the atheist. And uh, and so now, this could go several different ways. You know, you may have convinced him, you may have not. But uh, I've heard this argument many times that this the objection takes us around. Okay, so the most you've made a case for now is deism, not theism. Or you've made a case for uh, a first cause outside of space and time, but that doesn't mean that this being is a personal God. That doesn't mean that this being cares about humanity and, and so forth. And uh, and so what we end up, it, it, they end up in a problem here because if they admit deism, deism is actually a form of theism. It actually does admit the existence of a God. But but even in this uh, critique here, what they're really saying is that they can see that there's a case for an infinite creator, a first cause, but they don't agree that this God should be a personal being, that he should have a personality maybe or be able to make choices, and that he would care about his creation. Um, this objection you'll find is, again, without any merit, without any logical argument of any kind. It's merely just, and you, you can see this as, a, as an experiment, it was you're talking to people, um, they will not uh, approach this with a logical argument. They will say, well, just because you've made that case doesn't mean that, that this is true. And they won't make a case against it. They will just simply not believe it. But uh, in any case, you can actually, from the first cause argument we've just made, you can put together the case for a personal creator. You can actually get there. And this gets a little, uh, you guys are going to have to hang with me. This gets a little technical here and a little abstract. But uh, uh, the necessary, the necessity of a personal God stemming from the first cause argument. And for those of us pro-lifers, uh, this section could be called the personhood of God, right? And uh, And so the easiest way to explain this is that the first cause must be changeless. It's nature. This thing's nature cannot change. 
And, and so this is crucial to this because the first cause by definition must be changeless in nature, in its nature. For if its nature could change, then we would have to ask what caused its nature to change. It's no longer the first cause now. Something else would have had to have caused its nature to change. And, uh, and I'm going to quote here, William Lane Craig uh, says, you know, we've seen that the universe, that the beginning of the universe was the effect of a first cause. By the nature of the cause, that cause cannot have a beginning of its existence or any prior cause. It must be the first cause. If it just exists changelessly without the beginning, and a finite time ago it brought the universe into existence, now this is very peculiar. As we just said, the cause is in some sense eternal, and yet the effect is not. And so think about that. We're going to come back to that. How could this happen? If the sufficient conditions for the effect are, are eternal, then why isn't the, or the cause eternal? Why isn't the effect also eternal? How can the first event come, in, uh, come to exist if the cause of that event exists changelessly and eternally? How can the cause exist without its effect in that, in that explanation? And so what we get here is the difference between personal causes or impersonal causes. And so gravity, for example, is the, exa- is the example of an impersonal cause. And from the moment, uh, if I pick this up, from the moment I let it go, gravity takes its effect. It causes this thing to fall to the ground, and the effect is this thing falls to the ground. Now, if the first cause is impersonal, then from the moment that thing existed, which we've already determined must have been literally forever, eternally, from the moment that thing existed as a cause, its effect would have also existed. Which means the universe, we get into a situation where the universe in that case must eternally have existed forever. And we've already seen how that is completely illogical. And so you can actually get to a personal cause because personal causes are people making decisions. I may have a certain nature or God may have a certain nature. And his nature might include libertarian free will. His nature might include all good and all of these different characteristics of God. And so if part of his nature is free will, then God acting on his free will is not a violation of his nature. And so the only way we really get out of this dilemma is uh, is if we actually uh, uh, to say that this first cause is a personal being that has the choice to create a universe. You see, because if this first cause is impersonal, then by definition, it would have had to have changed to create a universe, and change requires a cause. And so we get into this problem if we, if we don't uh, apply a personal characteristics to this first cause. And so there we get a, 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 a personal God. There is yet another argument, too, um, the argument from consciousness and libertarian free will. Simply put, can an unconscious cause that lacks a will at all bring about consciousness or conscious beings that do have free will? Is that logical? And this is the argument from immateriality. Can a material being... Um, uh, ultimately be the cause, can, can just material itself be the cause of immateriality? And that just makes no logical sense. And, uh, and so right here we're going to quote um, <clears throat> regarding the difficulty of citing a mindless cause for a mind and an impersonal cause for the personal. We're going to quote uh, British philosopher and theologian Keith, Keith Ward who said, there is force in the classical philosophical axiom that for a truly explanatory cause to be intelligible, it must contain its effects potentially in itself. As the classical philosopher put it, um, the cause must contain more reality than its effects. 
When Ward cites the axiom that a cause must contain uh, its effects potentially in itself, he is simply stating in philosophical jargon that the cause must also be conscious and personal if it is to if its effect is going to be conscious and personal. So the fact that we have conscious and personal minds existing really, really begs the fact that there must be a personal and conscious mind at the at the ultimate beginning of the universe. And so, therefore, you can see, based on this one argument, this one first cause argument, we may know that a personal creator of the universe exists who is uncaused, without beginning or end, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, unimaginably powerful and intelligent, and that this being doesn't exist by wishful thinking alone, but exists by necessity as the only proper explanation for our existence. If that doesn't make you say, whoa, I don't know what will. The uh, the scriptures have much to say that affirms uh, these necessary characteristics. For example, God is the first cause. We can look at Colossians for, uh, 1, um, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is also, we can see that he is eternal. Psalms 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We can see that uh, from this argument, from this really basic argument, we can put together the most fundamental characteristics of our God. We can see that God is changeless. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is outside of space and time. From Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are, are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a, twent- a tent to dwell in? This is our God. All the atheist is left to do here is to appeal to what we don't know yet. And again, as we've seen, this is not an argument. And we've seen many reasons to uh, to know and assume that no argument will come forth naturalistically that will explain the existence of nature. We've already seen that circular problem. Or they could make assertions that are logically contradictory and scientifically baseless. This is not a position that you'd want to find yourself in, folks. Uh, I was in this position for many, many years of my life. And and I can tell you that when confronted with these arguments, um, there is a, a sort of internal knot that needs to be untied. But uh, But you can, if you allow yourself to follow where the evidence leads, you can get there. And so then we're left to ask, why the resistance? Why not follow the evidence where it leads? Why choose to deny these arguments in favor of logically contradictory beliefs? Why deny on the basis of maybe in the future some evidence will support their disbelief? These are all questions we need to ask, but one thing we can know for certain is that theism, and particularly Christian theism, is is a much more rational worldview in light of the evidence than atheism. There is literally no excuse to be an atheist in today's day and age with what we know about science and logic and reasoning. And so if you're out there and you haven't, you haven't discovered this God yet, um, you haven't discovered the beautiful truths of this God, I, I encourage you to come to know him tonight. Uh, Pastor Kaminsky will, lead, will, I'm sure, lead an, an invitation. And uh, there is no better truth than to know our God. 
And we can know from natural theology that he exists. We can know from our Bible that he exists. We can know from our personal connection with God that he exists. And, uh, and God is so real. And so I encourage you, if you do not know this God yet, uh, Lord, that you, that you would come to, uh, come to know him today. And uh, that's what I got. Thank you. Amen. Amen and amen. I taught him everything he knows. <laughs>